Welcome to another one of our Answers class in Sunday School. And uh, as we should do before we begin, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for the opportunity to meet together as your people to study, to discuss, and be challenged by the scriptures and the, the conviction of the Holy Spirit that, that uh, dwells within us. We're grateful for the privilege that we have to meet as your, as your church. Help us to have open eyes and open ears and open hearts to what you would say to us today through the word and through the, uh, through the interaction with one another. We give you praise for how you'll do this through Jesus Christ our Savior. Amen. So I don't know if you knew the topic ahead of time, uh, but the answers, or at least the question, I don't know if we should call it answers so much as questions. The question for the day is, should Christians send their children to public school? A question which I'm sure none of you have opinions on at all whatsoever. Uh, before I look at the at least one of or a couple of the considerations to answer this question for my wife and myself, we have uh, had a long, large range of experience with both, both Christian and private school and homeschooling. Our, all three of our children have attended public school. They've been homeschooled, and they've attended Christian school. I, I attended public school growing up, but I wasn't a Christian, so that's not a surprise. In university, I went to both secular and Bible school in university. My wife went to a Bible, uh, a, a Christian college, as well as secular university. So we've had, we've had a large range of experience. And I will say out of all the schooling that our children have done, the largest amount of time was spent homeschooling them. So we know a, a little bit about all those areas. Uh, as we consider this question, I know that there's going to be, again, some, some strong opinions on either side of this question, and maybe even somewhere in the middle. Uh, so let's, uh, let's keep in mind that we'll, we'll let God do the talking and see what he says to us by the end. Okay. Now, when we consider this question, for some people that uh, are new to the faith, maybe have never even considered what's going on in public school, maybe people that don't have, have children and, and you just read on the internet what's happening in public schools, we know the obvious failures that we're dealing with in public schools. The scholastic underachievement is not anything new that our American kids usually underperform compared to other international kids. And in terms of, of private Christian school, homeschool versus public school, uh, homeschool kids and, and Christian school kids are way above in standardized testing. So we already know that. We know that in public schools there's a, de a definite secular humanist agenda. If that word or if that phrase is new to you, secular humanism elevates the individual. It elevates the self. I'm going through this one really quickly. By the way, uh, hopefully this PowerPoint will be available on the internet if you want to go back and look at it later and then write some comments afterwards or email or something like that. You don't have to be in school very long to know that there is an atheistic anti-God agenda, whether it's related to the sciences, whether it's related to the social sciences, whether it's related to the English literature uh, that's chosen and how it's discussed. We understand that that is the case. That there's a relativism, meaning that things are, are in a balance. One day it might be one thing, one day it might be another, or it's individually determined. A relativism of truth which is saying that there is no absolute truth, that what's true for, for Willa might be different than what's true for Heidi. Uh, 
that, this is not the first time that question's ever come up. All 2,000 years ago, Pilate asked Jesus, what is truth? And it's interesting, people are still asking that question today. And there's also a relativism of morality. What's, what's true for me and how to live my life should not be imposed on somebody else. We understand that's the case. Discipline problems are rampant. I read the most recent statistic is one in three students are bullied in school. By the way, that's not just bullied in public schools, but that's also bullied in Christian schools also. And this sparks some very strong opinions. If you read anything on the internet about this topic, the Southern Baptist Convention and Albert Moeller in, in uh, particular are giving some very direct appeals to Christians to take their kids out of public school. I came across a, a group called the Exodus Mandate Group, which are saying that our children should come out of Pharaoh's schools and be delivered to the promised land of Christian education in Canaan. And uh, one of the quotes that seems to sum up what uh, some of the, the have very strong opinions about public schools say is, if you give your kids to Caesar, don't be surprised if they come back Romans. So all this to say, I understand and I know and I, and I really believe the, the purposes and the reasons that people would say, don't send your kids to public schools because of all, because of all this and others. So I understand this and we've, I've experienced this personally in, in my secular education. And we, when we interact with our kids after they've come back from their few years, but still significant years in public school, we know this is going on. So I'm not coming to this topic blindly, and I'm not coming into it with, uh, w without any experience whatsoever. So after all of this, it's a, it's a good idea. If God leads that way, it definitely is a good idea to find alternatives to your child's education. However, here's what we need to look at in the few minutes that we have together. Is it a biblical mandate to do so? And when we answer that question, as with so many issues in scriptures, we have to be careful what really is a mandate and what is our own personal direction from the Lord. Is it the only option for all families? In other words, do you have no choice but to take your kids out of public school and find some alternative such as a Christian school or homeschooling? And are families out of God's will if they choose to participate in public schooling? And some of you are maybe in, in your heart, you're saying, yes, they are. Some of you are saying, no, they're not. So we'll, we'll go through and look at some considerations and see where we come out, come out at the end of the day. And again, depending on time and discussion, although I'm going to ask, let's, let's wait till the end for discussion, okay? Because I really need to get through some things here. And then let's have our discussion based on what's, what's been presented and then we'll see what happens after that, okay? So here are some considerations, and depending, again, how we get through it, there are five of them. One are some biblical examples of people who didn't have a choice and didn't end up too badly after a, let's call it a public school education. There are a few of those in scripture. What is the kingdom mandate? If there is a kingdom mandate, in which, which direction does it fall? When I say kingdom, I'm talking about the kingdom of God, the one that we've been studying about and learning about during the Sermon on the Mount series that Pastor Van is doing. Can you, be, can you be separate, and, and if you read anything about the homeschooling movement, Christian schooling movement on the internet, the, uh, there's a very familiar passage, come out from among them and be separate and touch not the unclean thing passage, and I think we need to look at that and, and, and see what, what that passage is saying and how it applies should people decide that public schooling is a, a viable option for their family. 
we need to be careful of divisiveness. And no matter what we do today, I need to get to this point in the, in the PowerPoint. Because whatever choice we make, how we interact with other people based on a choice different from our own could be helpful or hurtful to the church at large. We may be doing a, a great service to our children, but a great disservice to the kingdom of God and the cause of Jesus Christ and how we relate to one another about this issue. And we need to look at what it means to live by faith. And I know we're saved by faith, but sometimes living by faith takes a whole nother, uh, whole nother uh, reset in our spiritual thinking. So as we look at this, let's consider a couple of biblical examples first. So I hope you have your Bibles with you. We're not going to read every passage, but we'll read some of the passages. Let me ask you first, can you name, and I'm sure with this group, we're going to be able to come up with this pretty quickly. Can you name three biblical stories, three biblical narratives where children had what would be called a public school or pagan school upbringing? Daniel. Daniel's one of them. Moses. Moses. And starts with a J and, and rhymes with Osef. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Joseph. Thank you very much. So, so we know Joseph. We, we know Joseph's story. How he was sold into slavery. Where do you think he got his education? Where did Joseph grow up? What was his What was his schooling option? He didn't have an option. But where did he go to school? Was he going to school? I think he was, he was probably, he was probably he was, well, he had a very, very beginning. I'm talking about afterwards. When he, went, when, when he was sold into Egypt, he got his schooling from pagan, godless Egypt. And we already know that. Okay, we're gonna, we'll skip over Joseph's case. This is a long case. But there's actually some interesting, more interesting comments about the other guy that we mentioned, Moses. Now, we know the story in Exodus, how he was born to the Hebrew parents, but was raised as Pharaoh's daughter and grew up in, in Pharaoh's household. <coughs> in the Exodus account, it doesn't tell us too much of what he went through as a kid, but in Acts chapter 7, when Stephen is being brought before the Jewish leadership and he gives an account of his own people, his people Israel, and he goes from the very beginning and talks about how there's a division between those who do God's will and those who oppose God's will, he brings out the story of Moses. So I'd like somebody to read for us, read out loud, Acts chapter 7, verses 18 through 23. So could somebody do that for us? Then another king who knew nothing about Joseph became ruler of Egypt. He dealt treacherously with our people and oppressed our forefathers by forcing them to throw out their newborn babies so that they would die. At that time Moses was born, he was no ordinary child. For three months he was cared for in his father's house. When he was placed outside, Pharaoh's daughter took him and brought him up as her own son. Moses was educated in all the wisdom of the Egyptians and was powerful in speech and action. Wait, go ahead. We'll, we'll just stop there. No, we'll, we'll stop there. So where did Moses get his education? How was he raised? With what, with what climate? With what culture? The Egyptians. Okay. So... We'll go to the third guy, and I'll make a point out of all of these. So Moses certainly knows what it's like to be thrust into a religious environment where people don't think the way he thinks, and certainly where his mother wished that he was being raised with a whole different set of day-to-day of, uh, uh, -day input in his life. 
The next one is Daniel. And actually, we, we say Daniel, but it's actually the other three guys, Hananiah. I chose their Hebrew names. Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. We know them as Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and that's kind of unfair because that's the names that were imposed upon them, so I'm keeping their Hebrew names. So how about somebody reads for us Daniel chapter 1, verses 4 through 9? Out loud. <laughs> Daniel's in the Old Testament. Young men without any physical defect, handsome, showing aptitude for every kind of learning, well informed, quick to understand, and qualified to serve in the king's palace. <clears throat> he was to teach them the language and literature of the Babylonians. The king assigned them to a daily amount of food and wine from the king's table. They were to be trained for three years, and after that, they were to enter the king's service. All right, now. Look what was changed. Their names were changed. Their whole language and their culture was changed. Their whole education system was changed. Talk about having a philosophy imposed upon you. I mean, we know what the American school system is doing in, in terms of trying to, to create a philosophy and an ideology and, and, and a, a, what the product they're hoping for will be at the end of, uh, of this public schooling education. That's stamped on Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah from the very beginning. So if anybody knows what it's like to be in a, in a godless, manipulative, anti-God, anti-Christ situation, it would have been these kids. They were kids. They were like young, young teens, most likely. So when we look at each of these three examples, what is unfair about these? Now, if you're like me, whenever you hear a presentation like this, you're probably thinking, that's not fair. We can't use them because of this and this and this. Let me tell you the unfairness at the beginning. The unfairness is those kids didn't really have a choice, and neither did their parents. So it's not like, it's not like uh, 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 Moses' mother said, hmm, would Moses get a better education under the Egyptians or being at home learning about the, 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 the one true God? Let's send them to the Egyptians. Let's give them a cross-cultural experience. Daniel and the rest, they were brought from into captivity into Babylon. They didn't have a choice of where they were going to school. So that's what's unfair. I'll tell you ahead of time. That's what's unfair about the situation. It's not like the parents weighed the issues and decided to send their kids there. However, what is fair about using these examples is that it shows that you're not a product only of your environment. And you can go through a, the most ungodly, the most anti-Christ, the most pagan kind of, uh, of influence that could possibly be imposed upon you. If you think the American public school system is bad, try growing up in Babylon. You can go through the most viciously antagonistic philosophy against, what, against true godliness and still come out and make a mark in society. So it is possible to survive it. And that's what's fair about using these guys is that it shows that it's possible to not be so influenced by your culture that you don't have a choice. So there are biblical examples of those that have gone through a, a very <coughs> anti-God system and have come, out, uh, have, have come out on top. What we don't see are all the kids, the, the, the ones that went into exile with Daniel and the rest, that went through that and turned into Babylonians that turned into the, the product that the Babylonians were trying to make them into. We don't see that. But we know that it's possible to come through this and not just survive, 
not just thrive personally, but to make an impact in the world. And in each of those cases, Joseph, Moses, and, and uh, Daniel, and the rest, we would have to acknowledge that they did make an impact in Okay, what about some kind of a kingdom mandate? Uh, I read about the Exodus mandate on the internet. Uh, if, you look, if you Google that, if you're interested in that one, you can find it. And, and if you're uh, uh, interested, you'll see some more of their specific teachings on it. What about a, a kingdom mandate? What is there about, about the kingdom of God and what Jesus Christ says about it that should affect us as Christians? Well, it's not surprising that one of those kingdom mandates comes from a passage that we've been looking at recently in church, Matthew chapter 5 verses 13 through 16. Would someone read those verses out loud? You are the salt of the earth, but if the salt loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled by men. You are the light of the world. A city on a hill cannot be hidden. Neither do people light a lamp and put it under a bowl. Instead, they put it on its stand, and it gives light to everyone in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before men, that they may see your good deeds and praise your Father in heaven. Salt of the earth, light of the world. The reason for light is to let it shine, not to be hidden. And then before I make some comments about that, another kingdom mandate uh, explanation is found in, in Matthew chapter 16 in the, in the passage related to Peter's confessions. Now, as, you, as you're turning there, as you're turning to Matthew chapter 16, we know about Peter's confession when Jesus said, who people say that I am? The disciples say, oh, they say you're Jeremiah, one of the prophets, etc. And Jesus says, but you, who do you say that I am? And we know Peter's confession. You are the Christ, the son of the living God. So we know that confession uh, episode. Where that episode takes place could be pretty important. The episode takes place far north of where Jesus lived his life in a place called Caesarea Philippi. Caesarea Philippi was named after one of the Roman Caesars. It was one of the most Roman cultural cities that you could go to in that area of, of Palestine. And it was also a site that was known for its worship of paganism and certain Roman gods that were very important to them. So really, if you wanted to go to a, the most Roman cultural place that was trying to impose its will against God's people uh, in, in Jesus' day, Caesarea Philippi would be one of those. Okay, so in other words, it's a place that even as a Jew steps in there, they know that they're in foreign territory, not just physical land, but they know that they're in cultural foreign territory. Uh, a, 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 a whole worldview that pushes against what God is trying to, to use his people to do. So against this backdrop and against Peter's confession, here's Christ's words. So somebody read Matthew 16, verse 18. Out loud. I tell you that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not overcome it. So even as Jesus is commending Peter for the confession that he says, you're the Christ, the Son of the living God, Jesus says, on this rock I'm going to build my church. And I know we, if we were doing a more of a detailed study on Matthew 16, we would get into what the different rocks are. But Jesus may have been referring to the very place in which he was standing. On this rock, in this place, I'm going to build my church. On a place of paganism, on a place of Romanism, on a place of, of, of anti-God culture, I'm going to build my church on the most pagan 
disappointing places that a, that a, a godly person could ever imagine. This is where I'm going to build my church, and the gates of hell won't stand. The gates of hell is referring not just to an onslaught of the church. It's referring to the church taking back and going against and fighting against the kingdom that Satan and, and his program have had for thousands of years. The gates of hell is not a way of saying the church is going to withstand Satan's attack. It's a way of saying the church is going to go on the offensive. Both Matthew chapter 5 and Matthew chapter 16 talk about a kingdom mandate to go forward and take ground that had, already, that had previously belonged to Satan and the ungodly elements of this world and this life. So if there's a kingdom mandate, the mandate is go on the offensive. And sometimes as Christians, we've kind of gone on the, on the defensive. We've taken the idea of you know, being on one side of the border and lobbing cruise missiles and rocket launchers and like lobbing things over to the other side instead of actually going in and taking on a, a, a figurative or metaphorical territory that had belonged to the enemy. And if you choose to send your children to public schools, opportunities abound, not just for your kids to be a light there. One of the... One of the uh, frequent comments is, well, if my child's going into third or fourth grade, we don't expect them to be a missionary. We don't expect them to be an evangelist in their, in their, own, in their own classroom. But there are tremendous opportunities for parents to influence the world and be salt and light in a public school setting. The, the Parent Teachers Association being classroom volunteers, uh, going to parent-teacher conferences and interacting with people that may not see Christians in any other light other than what they read on the internet, just like what we read about the other, uh, uh, other side on the internet. And we can be a voice from within. How many people have lamented that they've taken prayer out of school, they've taken the Ten Commandments out of schools, they won't allow this and they won't allow that and they won't allow the other thing? Well, what do you expect? It's a secular public school. You want to influence the schools? Then go from within. It's like a golden opportunity if you want to look at it from that, from that respect. Not just the kids, but the parents. And even as we consider this, here's a, here's a little thought experiment. Just picture this. Every Christian takes every single one of their Christian children out of public school. Every Christian teacher says, I'm not going to teach in that environment. I don't want to be handcuffed by not being able to say the, the, the name of Jesus. So every Christian teacher leaves to teach in a Christian school. Here's your thought experiment. Imagine a public school with no Christian influence whatsoever in any way, shape, or form. All Christians have pulled out and are sending their kids to Christian school or homeschool. What would that look like? In your thought experiment, what happens at the end of a at the end of a couple years or at the end of a generation? I'm not, uh, I'm not asking for a, I'm not asking for an answer. In your thought experiment, just picture the rollout of what happens. And if you think society is in need of something today, imagine a society where Christians have pulled out of one of the most influential areas in which we can actually do something. And I know that there's places where people have said, oh, no matter what we say, we're shouted down, our kids can't say what they want to in school, the school board doesn't listen to me, the teachers say this or that, the other thing. When do we stop trying? So all this is an idea of kingdom mandate. All this to say that if people choose to send their children to public school, I wouldn't say that they're being outside of God's will, but they can use it to be part of God's will in this respect. 
So let's continue. What about the command to be separate? Someone read for us 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 4 through 18. Watch who you rely on and watch who you partner with. I know we've used this, this uh, passage 
in principle, and rightly so, for business agreements, marriage contracts, and the like. Because it follows the same thing. How do you have true fellowship with someone with a, with, with a different kind of worldview? You can have friend, there could be friendship there. But can you really have a portion and a share and a fellowship and a communion with people who have a completely different outlook, worldview, and destiny than, than we have? It's really, that's really different. So your associations matter, and that's what this, this passage is talking about. Paul wasn't talking about his, his false, uh, his anti-God Roman culture in which he lived. He was talking about the false Christian culture that leads us down the wrong road and causes us to compromise our faith. Just come out from among them, come out from their midst. Don't be completely consumed. To be separate, in one sense, means to put a boundary line or a limit. It doesn't mean to completely separate yourself and have no, uh, have no interaction with them whatsoever. In one of his other books, in 1 Corinthians, Paul himself said, don't have any fellowship with people that are sexually immoral. Um, but I don't mean with nobody who does that, otherwise you'd never have any contact with anybody in the world. So Paul's not saying don't, don't have any contact whatsoever with those that don't share our beliefs. But know what your boundaries and what your limits are. Know where you're going to go to, know what you're going to step back from. Know how, know what your, know, K-N-O-W, what your no and O is going to be if it's going to compromise your faith. In other words, know your, know your own boundaries, know your own limits. So there's, we, we are familiar with the phrase, be in the world, but not of the world. Unfortunately for some people, they've gone to avoiding the world. And thinking, just like the, the people of medieval times, the monks of medieval times, if I can avoid what's happening around me, and if I can avoid the ungodliness and sinful activities around me, it will keep me from being sinful. That didn't work for the monks in the Middle Ages. It doesn't work for us today. For re well, we'll get into that one in the, in the next couple of points. In other words, this whole passage, the, the passage about being separate is saying, don't compromise your faith, don't compromise your activities, and the people that you rely on could either help you in your spiritual journey or be a drag. So who are those and how can you avoid that? It's just a quick, Quick response, because when you, when, when you see passages being used for proof of one thing or another, take some time to go back and look at it and to find out what the context is and what it's really saying. It's easy to throw out some words. It's more responsible to see what those words are saying to us what the God's, and what God's message is. So again, this is saying, this passage is saying, as I'm looking at this, that if you choose to send your kids to public school, know what your know what the boundaries are, know what the limits are. And we're not we're certainly not getting into a fellowship, communion, and harmony with any government agency, whether it's going to be the school or anything else. What happens when we come to differences of reasoning? There's a really popular, uh, really famous passage when people have differences of, of opinions on issues in scripture that are developed and not so much commanded. What I mean by that is there are some scriptures that are very clear when it says don't do this or do this, either something we're not to do or something we are to do. But then there are principles derived from those passages. And that's where we get into differences of reasoning. The reason I'm using this this uh, phrase, 
because of the way it shows up in Paul's discussion. We're going to look at a few passages from Romans chapter 14. Someone please read for us Romans 14 verses 1 through 4. translation it says doubtful things or disputable manners the word the the phrase is really differences of reasoning when you read this passage the word weak shows up and weak is a very uh, uh, pejorative term isn't it so you have the weak and the strong well when you see weak in this passage it doesn't mean that someone who uh, is is an immature Christian but it's talking about someone who Christian faith doesn't allow them to do a specific practice. And Paul, in his typical way of writing, is probably using a term that was given to this group, the ones that, that feel that they should not do this as a Christian. They were probably given the term weak by those who consider themselves strong in the faith, able to do whatever they have in Christian liberty, and a- attach that name to them. So Paul, so Paul's not calling them re- weak. He's probably saying the people you call weak do this. So I just want to make this clear. Now, as we look at this passage, if you if you were reading along with it, what are the let's let's contemporize the two factions. In this passage, the two factions were what? What was the what was the disputable or the 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 uh, difference of opinion over in this in this in these four verses? It was the weak in faith. What you do? Some eat meat. Some not. Or we'll see another one later on. If we're, go- if we're going to contemporize it for today, what would the two factions be according to the discussion that we're doing in Sunday school? What are the two? What would be two public factions? School, public school. Yeah, public school, non-public school. Some people, and I'm not going to say which one is weak in round What is leave? We'll leave that. Although again, weak doesn't mean that they're immature. It's just the what, what one, what one little stone the other group was throwing at them. One group believes that you're able to send your kids to public school. Another one says you should not send your kids to public school and they should only be sent to Christian school or home school. Those are, that would be that way to contemporize the two factions. Now, what are the two negative attitudes expressed? Read that, look at that passage again. One group, what was the strong, for lack of a better term, what was the strong group, the ones that said, I can eat anything I want, saying about the what they would call the weak group who could not who could not eat? What was their attitude? Looking down on them. Well specifically what is the wording that's used? Despise. Don't despise. Don't hate. Don't look look, well, look down on. Don't think don't belittle them. And isn't that isn't that what happens with well that's with the other. What's the other negative attitude? The ones that only the ones that can't eat meat, look at those that are eating everything, and what's their negative attitude? Judging. Judging. 
So one group judges another. How come you're eating meat? You know you shouldn't be doing that. Didn't God say in his word this and this and this and this and this? How can you do this and cause offense to the cause of Christ? Do you know what you're doing to the church when you're doing? They're judging that, saying you should, you should be doing the same thing that we're doing. The other group, the, call them the strong group, again, for lack of a better term, call, or the carnivores, let's call them that. <laughs> the meat eaters. The meat eaters are saying to the, the group that, are, that isn't doing it, why are you doing it? You know, you're an embarrassment to us. You're supposed to be moving on from here. Aren't you supposed to have stronger faith? Don't you know that Jesus died to make all food clean and this and this and this? Why don't you grow up in your faith? Both groups are causing offense to the other group by either being judgmental and saying, you should do the things the way I'm doing it, or despising the other group saying, you're an embarrassment to us. Why don't you get on with your faith and act like a mature Christian should? And as the church, and I'm not saying as the church with a capital C universal, as this church, FBC, we need to reflect on whether there's some of this attitude going on. Whether the, the one group, and I want to call it strong and weak, whether one group is judging another saying, if you were really a Christian, this is what you would do. And this is how you would act. And this is what you would do with your family. And whether the other group is saying, how come you're not getting into society and getting on with the kingdom mandate? Don't you know that you're causing offense to Christ by not being salt and light in the world and being separationist and everything else? I don't know what's in your hearts. I don't know if that conversation has ever passed anybody's lips, but it requires us to see if this is really going on here. Because no matter what choices we make about our children's education, one thing that has been true about the, about the church from its very inception is that nothing has hindered the church, not public school, not Roman government, not any religious uh, uh, persecution against the church, nothing has destroyed the church more than internal divisiveness. That is the only thing that has ever kept the church from going and, and storming the gates of hell. And we need to ask if this issue of, home, uh, of public school and non-public school is doing this. And maybe it would require us to do some introspection and see if we need to confess some things. And if, and if those words have passed our lips to somebody else, maybe we need to make some relationships right in the end. I read this on one of the websites. It's the reason I put it here. We as Christians need to stop sitting and obey the Lord's command to come out from their midst and be separate. If you want to obey the Lord by removing your children from a public or religious school and take your parental responsibility upon yourself where it belongs, we will help you. Look at the wording that's used there. We need to stop sinning. That's the, isn't that, that judging business, isn't it? If you want to obey the Lord, in other words, if you send your children to public school, you're not obeying the Lord. If you want to obey the Lord and take your kids out, we'll, we'll help you do it. The thought may be accurate. For a person, they may say, I really believe that, that for me, I'm sitting if I send my children to public school and I need to obey the Lord and, and bring my children out and, and find another educational alternative. But look at the language that's used. Is this language helpful in any kind of, in any kind of discussion? It's, it's very divisive, and I think we need to look at that and make sure that what choices we make are not going to cause the, the Church of Jesus Christ to suffer. We can do the we can do the right thing and end up with a bunch of wrongness at the end. 
verses 5 through 12. Uh, we, we won't have time to read that, but if you read verses 5 through 12 later on, which I hope you would, what you find is that whether you do one thing or the other, and in those verses it's talking about what days to worship and, and how you should, how you should uh, uh, either set one day aside or consider all days a Sabbath day or, or a day is unto the Lord. Everyone needs to be fully convinced. And when we get to the issue of public school or non-public school, we need to be fully convinced. If we're sending our kids to public school, are we convinced that's what God wants us to do? And if we're not sending our kids to public school, are we convinced that's the Lord's will for us? We answer to the Lord for our actions. We read further on, for to the Lord we stand and to the Lord we fall. Who are you to tell the Lord's servant what they should or shouldn't be doing in, those, in that passage? That it's, look, it's God that we have to answer to for what we've done with our children's education and the choices that we've made and how those roll out. Then lastly, under living by faith, that's really important, but we're not going to read. Galatians 2.20 is one of the verses that speak about living. We're saved by faith, but we live by faith. Every, every day is a faith test for us. Every opportunity that we go through is a faith test. So we, sometimes we like to control the situation instead of trusting God to work through the situation. So we may not have as much control over the situation as we believe we do. Even, even whether it's creating an environment that looks perfect, greenhouse for growth environment we could possibly give our children for growing in the nurture and admonition of the Lord, we're still dealing with sinful, fallen people and wicked hearts. If, as I mentioned earlier, the medieval system of, of staying out from the world and living in a cloistered monastery didn't work because we still have to deal with the heart. So here are some general questions that we have to answer. Are our kids, whatever choices we made, are our kids prepared to engage in culture? Because someday they're going to. Whether it's as youngsters, as teenagers, as college kids, as people in the workforce, they're going to engage in culture. And are they really prepared? One of the things that, uh, that my son has said, and my son's been through all, all of the phases of, of uh, education, private uh, Christian school, public schooling, and, and uh, public school. One of the things that he said is, it's really interesting to hear someone who actually believes in evolution instead of hearing Christians talk about what other evolutionists believe. Mm -hmm. A lot different when you hear someone, or an atheist, or so you know, or, or a true agnostic, someone who's saying, "Well, I'm really not so sure what what this whole God thing is all about." We can talk about and give examples in Sunday school and youth group and whatever, and those are necessary and helpful. But it's another thing entirely when you're talking to someone who actually believes that. What happens when the first true challenge to faith occurs? Not debates, not uh, let's role play, but what happens when you're truly confronted with this? Whatever choices we make, whether it's public schooling or non-public schooling, these questions need to be dealt with. Because you can, you can homeschool and private school your, your kids from, from cradle all the way up to the point where they graduate with whatever degree they're going to get from, from ex-Christian college or Bible school. What happens when there's a true challenge? When the answers aren't there readily in the book given to them? When it's not theoretical, but when it's actual? And are we, we need to answer if we're building the spiritual equivalent of monasteries. So, because we only have about a minute or two, here are some conclusions. Let everybody be fully persuaded by God. 
whether you're sending your kid to public school, be fully persuaded and be ready to take the most of that opportunity. It's one thing to just send your kid to school, but understand what that means. It means that you're going to engage your child when they come back. You're going to ask what was taught. You're going to modify what needs to be modified. That what? Deprogram. Yeah, and in some cases deprogram or give or, or make it a discussion point. To use the opportunities that are there. It's one thing to say, well, I'm going to send my kid to public school so we can be salt and light in the world. And then as a parent, you do nothing. The opportunity's missed. Yeah. Or to do the, or do the other. I'm sending my kid to Christian school so I don't have to worry. I've been to Christian school. You need to worry. <laughs> it's, just not, what, it's just not very overt, but there's still that, that business that goes on below the surface. You can't, you can't abdicate parental responsibility just because kids are not being sent to that heathen, godless public school system. Every case is on an individual basis, and that might even mean within, within your own circle of children, within your own home. Maybe you take two kids, Johnny and Susie. Johnny, because of where he is in the Lord, and because of your relationship with him as father or mother, Johnny may need to go to Christian school because he'll get eaten up, spit out, and turned off by what's happening in public school. Susie may have a great relationship with Jesus and may be a, a, a wonderful opportunity to engage and to, I'll use the word, infiltrate infiltrate the public school system, not just with Susie, but with Susie's parents. You know, again, it's one thing to lob bombs at what's happening out there in the public school system and write blogs about how bad it is, and you know what? The school system doesn't care if we're doing it from without. They, they, it makes more of a difference when we're doing it from within. And there might be a difference for your child between what happens with elementary, junior, senior high, and college. Maybe, maybe college is a time to back off a little bit and say, let's, let's be among our own for a bit, bolster our faith. Or maybe it's the other way around, is that, that, that elementary years are when you lay a foundation in Christian school, and then later on it turns into a, a storming the gates. But again, it's individual, and it might even be seasonal, depending on what season your child is in. And lastly, we need to watch our attitudes. Whatever, whatever choices we make for our kids, and I guess I have to give the final conclusion, is sending our kids to public school is not out of God's will, if that's what we're fully convinced we're to do. And we rely on faith and trust that God is going to get us through it. Bringing our kids into a homeschool setting could be God's will. Christian school could be. In other words, we need to decide for ourselves in our own situations what's happening. But whatever choices we make, we need to watch our attitudes and it doesn't tear the church apart. Because we can make great decisions for our family and cause disruption in the kingdom of God by, uh, by our, our words, by our actions, and by our relationships for lack of it. Well, we have 13 seconds. Anyone have a comment? <laughs> Let's pray. Lord, again, we are grateful for the truth of your word, for the challenge that it, uh, that it presents to us. There are, no, um, there are no cookie cutter answers for everybody. Your people are all, uh, as individuals, we have life experiences. We have a, a part of your plan for our lives and for our families that may differ from one another. So Lord, help us to live by faith, to live 
each day by faith and trust you for whatever you're calling us to do. You may be calling us to step out in faith and to, and to homeschool or, or um, extend ourselves financially to send our children to private school. You may be calling us to extend our faith by sending our kids to public school and increasing our faith and our, um, our engagement with our children afterwards, maybe in a more meaningful way than we've had before. Lord, however you're directing us, help us to, um, to make decisions that would please you, decisions that will strengthen and, and encourage our children, make decisions that will, uh, that will impact the church for these, these uh, young kids and these young adults that are going to be the next generation of, uh, of church leaders and church ministers. We thank you for the, uh, for the body, how we are dependent upon each other. Help us to guard our hearts, to guard our tongues, and guard our relationships, that no matter what choices we make, we would be speaking and acting as Jesus our Savior would. We thank you for the opportunities presented to us to be salt and light, and pray that you would give us the courage and strength to storm the gates of hell, that what Jesus had, um, had set in motion would be realized by us, and, and however you can do it through us as individuals and through this local assembly at fellowship. We give you thanks for all these blessings and ask for your uh, continued help as we endeavor to be your people in the midst of a, a twisted and perverse and dark world. We give you thanks in Jesus' name. Amen.